In August of 2019, uh, shortly after Joshua Harris, who is the famous author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye, announced that he was leaving the faith, another celebrity evangelical threw in the towel. Uh, Marty Sampson, which is not a name that I was particularly familiar with, although I am familiar with Hillsong United, and many of you might be. And you might also, some of you might remember the group Delirious, which was a very popular Christian band a number of years ago. Well, Marty Sampson was the lead worship leader of Hillsong United and also a songwriter who wrote songs for both Hillsong United and also for Delirious. And he announced on Instagram that he was leaving the faith. Uh, this is an excerpt from his post. This is a soapbox moment, so here I go. How many preachers fall? No, many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be loved yet send 4 billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet, and they can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people. But it's not for me. In reading some of the commentary about it, I like what one writer said, and it was just simply a question, what is he talking about? In, in other words, preachers falling, no one talks about it. I, I don't think that's true. About the difficulties of miracles happening or the difficulty of miracles not happening, I don't know. We talk about those things. The idea of hell, I mean, last year you guys asked me to preach on hell and heaven and eternal things. I can't judge where this person is, and, and I don't know what's in his heart, but I, I think that there is a real challenge that's going to come to us, and it's not just simply an intellectual challenge, because the mind is not just our ability to reason, but it's, it's something um, much more profound than that. And to love God with our mind implies certain things, and it means that we don't settle for easy answers. We don't settle for just so reasons. And, and if, if, like this brother, he had questions and doubts, then to love God with our mind means that we have to have the courage to bring those doubts out, to talk about them. And we need to have a sense in which we can say, hey, look, I don't understand this. Can someone help me? It, to love God with my mind also implies that there are going to be things that I just don't understand. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. I mean, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. So if I were to to say that I'm going to love God with my mind, it has to imply that when I come up to something that I don't understand that the Bible teaches, that I will not be so arrogant as to say, well, God, that just can't be real because I don't understand it. But many people in the world approach God and the truth of the Bible in that way. Look, if I don't understand it, it can't be real. If I don't understand it, I can't believe it. If I can't see it and, and if, I, if I can't grasp it, I, I, I'm just not going to accept it. But here's the problem. There are lots of things in life 
that you have no clue about, but you're totally okay with. You're just totally okay with it. I mean, you go into the doctor's office and he tells you something, you go, okay. I have no idea what he just said to me. Thank God there's Google. <laughs> you go to the car mechanic and he tells you that the thingamajig and the whatsamacallit has got to be replaced. You go, okay. You go ahead and replace the thingamajig and the whatsamacallit. I'll never forget the call. I called them, a mechanic called me. I said, Ken, you need to replace the boots on your car. I say, my car has boots? <laughs> I was like, what? But you know what? Hey, the expert told me that this was the case. And so I, I but, but it was like a $900 job. So I called another expert. I said, can you tell me about my boots? He says, you don't need to replace your boots. I'm like, oh, thank God. You see, what happens is, is that when it comes to spiritual things, a lot of times we set ourselves up as our own deity. We set ourselves up as our own judge and arbiter of what is truth. And if something doesn't resonate with us, if something doesn't uh, make sense to us, when it comes to spiritual things, we're very quick to just say, well, that just can't be so. One of the reasons why the Jehovah's Witnesses have such a hard time accepting the deity of Christ is because on a fundamental level, the founder of that religion basically said, this doesn't make sense to me. Russell, when he was preaching, argued that the deity of Christ did not make sense. And if you have conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses and you share the gospel with them, at some point in the conversation, if it lasts long enough, that's going to come up. They're going to say it doesn't make sense. So to love God with all my mind means two things. That one, I'm not going to just accept things without thinking things through. I'm not just going to just be credulous to everything that is told me or taught me, that I'm going to exercise the God-given faculty that God has given me, which the Bible calls the mind. But on the other hand, I'm not going to worship my mind. I'm not going to bow down before it as if it is God. And unless I understand it, unless I apprehend it, unless I can conceive of it, it can't be so. You see, there are lots of things that can challenge us. There are lots of things that, is, that are challenging in the Word of God. But the, but the reality is this. That in the 2,000 years since Jesus, or about approximately 2,000 years, there has not been, there has not been a challenge that the world has come up with that has not been answered. This is what's so remarkable to me, that like people talk about the problem of miracles. There's, there's lots of good reasons and lots of good reasoning that deals with that issue. The Bible talks about the birth, the, the virgin birth of Christ, and that raises all kinds of issues. And there have been lots of theologians and apologists who have addressed those issues. You see, what, what is interesting to us, and to me particularly, is that most of the time when people are throwing up intellectual objections to Christianity, it's really never because they've actually read the Bible. I mean, one of the first questions that I think you should ask, that I ask when someone says something like, well, the Bible's full of contradictions. Well, have you read the Bible? 
Or did you just hear that from some college professor and you just accepted it by faith? And you see, the reality is, is that a lot of times there are things that are intellectually challenging and there are things that are going to cause us to step back and wonder, but I don't think those are the things that cause people to walk away from the faith. I like what G.K. Chesterton said. He said, it's not that Christianity was tried and found wanting. It's that it was found hard and left untried. And you see, when we talk about loving God with our minds, what we are saying is that our Christianity can't be, re be reduced to mere sentiment. It cannot be just a feel momentary kind of good thing that is affecting us emotionally, that there's a rigor to our faith, that there is a, a, a vigor to our faith that requires us to employ our mind. I need to tell you that if your relationship to Jesus amounts to Jesus being your homeboy or your boyfriend, you don't have a good concept of who Jesus is. And what loving God with my mind means is that I'm loving God with my mind as I pursue the truth. And by pursuing the truth, I'm pursuing the one who said, I am the truth. Samson wrote, I'm not into it anymore. I want genuine truth, not the just I believe it kind of truth. That's a very admirable goal. That's a very, I want the truth. But as one college campus worker uh, summed up the trouble with today's cultural narrative said, it's fine to search for the truth as long as you don't find it. It's fine. I'm on the pursuit of truth. Really? What if you find it? See, it's okay in our culture to say you're in the pursuit of what's real, what's true, what's good. And then, what else? well, what if you find it? G.K. Chesterton also said, the point of having an open mind, like having an open mouth, is to close it on something solid. So the reality is, is your mind closed on something solid? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Do you have a firm grip on things spiritually? What do you know? What do you believe? Why do you believe it? Better still, who do you know? Jesus tells us that we're to love God with all our minds. What does that mean? Well, the first week we were together, we talked about the idea of the heart and how the heart is both our center and our orientation and our relationships and our emotions. That's just one way to think about the heart. This idea of it being a core of our being. And if I'm to love God with all my heart means that he's my center, that he becomes my orientation, that all my relationships are lived out in light of my love for him first, and that my emotions are 
both released and also contained and self-controlled in the sense that I don't live by my emotions, but I allow my emotions to experience what God has for me, whether that be joy or sadness, but that in all of it, I learn to love God. And of course, we found out in looking at the heart that all of us are in need of a heart transplant, that we cannot love anyone, much less God, until we are first loved by God and have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. And so this morning, what takes place first in a, in a, in a human's life in order to be rightly related to God is what the Bible refers to as a new birth. And a conversion experience where we come to God by faith, believing what he has said about his son Jesus. As we saw in the first service this morning, that God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son, pay attention to him. Listen to him. And we've come to understand who Jesus is, that he was the word made flesh, the God man, that he came and lived a sinless, sinless life here on earth in order to be the perfect sacrifice for you and for me. For the Bible teaches us that our sins separate us from God and that the wages are, or the penalty or the payment for sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That on the cross, Christ died for you and for me. That his death on the cross was a full payment that satisfied the wrath of God so that those who avail themselves and trust him can be declared righteous. That God will no longer charge them with any sin. That the sins they've committed, both past, present, and future, have been paid in full by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And because Jesus rose physically from the dead, God vindicates that sacrifice and says it is sufficient. It is the propitiation, the sacrifice that satisfies. And by raising him from the dead, he declares to all that he truly is the Son of God and that he has the authority and the power to give life in his name. My friend, this morning, if you want to love God, that's the starting point. It starts at the foot of the cross. It doesn't start with you trying harder to be better or more loving or more kind. It starts with you recognizing that you're not loving, that you're not kind, that you're not good. And it starts at a place where you go and you see Jesus dying, not just for the world or for the church, but for you. That Paul would say, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet it's not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself. For me. And so to love God with your core, with your center, your orientation, your relationship, your emotions, means that you go to the foot of the cross and you recognize the one who loved you and gave himself for you and thereby receive a new life. And last week, we talked about loving God with our soul and the idea that soul is breath and soul implies everything about you. The life that I now live in the flesh, that's the life that I love God with. Not somebody else's life, not some other life I wish I had, but the life that I now live, the life that I now live, in all the relationships I have, in all the moments of my day, in other words, whenever I'm breathing, that's when I'm supposed to be loving God. 
And so now we come to the third aspect that Jesus says in that commandment, to love God with all our mind. The Apostle Paul talks about the importance of having our minds renewed, to having our minds renewed. Why is that? Because there is a, a, a function of our being that we are, when we're saved, when we're born again, God puts something new in us, but he doesn't take out the old. So what happens is, what happens is, is that there is this person that you used to be before you came to Christ values and beliefs and patterns of thought and patterns of behavior that the Bible says, as far as you are concerned, you should count that all dead. You should reckon it as dead. Now, that's a very important principle because what he's saying is, is that it's still there, but you count it as dead. You reckon it as dead. And so what that means is that there's a process that goes on in the Christian life where my mind has to be renewed because there were things that I thought, there were things that I believed, there were things that I held true before Christ that just aren't so. And they're going to compete with the new mind, the mind of Christ. The Apostle Paul says that we're given by the Holy Spirit. We also have to have a renewed mind because the world is constantly telling us how to think, how to feel, what to believe, what's important, what you should value. And it's constantly trying to squeeze us into a mold. And that's what the Apostle Paul says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. My belief is that it is going to be much more difficult for Christians to maintain an orthodox faith, not because it's illogical, not because it's intellectually challenging, not because there isn't evidence in the Bible or good apologetics to defend it, but that it is unpopular. And my guess is that most of the time when celebrities walk away from the faith, it's because one, they're celebrities, and two, it's because of the pressures they feel as a result of that. You go to that church, you subscribe to this faith, you identify with these people, and there's a lot of pressure to bear, but born as a result of that. It's the same pressure you feel in high school when you walk in the hallways and you know that what you believe, the peers around you don't believe. And what's worse is that if you talk about your faith where you could say almost anything in any context, uh, you're sitting at the lunchroom table and you say to your, your friends, you know what, guys? I want, you know, I'm a transgender witch. Your peers will go, Cool! But if you say, I'm a born-again Christian, what's wrong with you? You could sit at the, at the, at, in the workshop and say, you know, I'd like to celebrate pangenderism at work. Let's have a day that celebrates that. I'd like to celebrate a day of Jesus' resurrection. What? You can't have 
church and school and religion here. You can't do that. So the reality is, is that as a Christian, it's not that what we believe is so crazy or that it's so irrational or that it's so mind-boggling that there's no basis in, in any kind of reason to accept these things. It's just that people don't like it. I mean, if you look back at history and you look back at over the last 500 years of history and you look at the great minds of science, the great minds of astronomy, the great minds of medicine, of philosophy, of, of, of all these different aspects, guess what? You're going to find out the vast majority, if not all of them, were Christians who believed in the Creator God. They never once thought that believing in mathematics and in believing in the Creator was somehow inconsistent. Blaise Pascal never saw any problems with the idea that there is, in fact, it was just the opposite. The great mathematician put all this in place. Wonders are, numbers are wonders. How, does this, how is this possible? It just reflects his glory. And so when we talk about having our minds renewed, there is a necessity both internally and externally. To love God with all my mind means I have to reconcile and wrestle with this truth, that there is something in me that's going to resist the truth of God because of my old nature, because of my sinful flesh. I'm going to resist the word of God, the truth of God, and it requires that my mind be renewed. It also requires my mind to be renewed because the culture is going to be constantly pressurizing me to think like it. And if I'm not renewing my mind, I'm going to be squeezed. But we have the mind of Christ. We have the ability through the Word of God and the Spirit of God to have our minds renewed. Now, when we think about our mind, um, the Bible uses the word mind in a lot of different contexts. It talks about it like when we think of our psychological self, the Bible sometimes uses the mind in that capacity. The psychological self. In other words, the person you talk to when no one else is listening. Right? You've had conversations with yourself. I have conversations out loud with myself. That's kind of, you know, that's a whole new level. Maybe some of you can identify with that. I don't know. You know? The psychological self. That's the mind in the Bible. But it's not just that. It's also the functions of reasoning of valuing, of judging, of processing, and ultimately of believing. And so if I'm going to love God with my mind, I need to understand that there's a renewal process that has to take place, and that the mind is this reasoning, believing, judging, processing part of my personality, which is why Christians should not be like dumb, brainless credulous automatons just saying yes to everything that's thrown at them. Why the Bereans in the Bible are praised because even though it was the Apostle Paul telling them things, they needed to search the Scriptures to see if these things were so. But when we think about our minds and we think about it, um, I have another little acronym for you. Okay, first Sunday it was CORE. Um, this Sunday it's ARMIT. Not armpit, arm it. And I take as a kind of model for this verse, I mean model for this acronym, the verse, therefore since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind. 
For you have suffered in the flesh as Caesar. Arm yourselves with him. Arm your mind. Arm it. Arm your mind. A, attention. Attention. Hear, my children, the instruction of a father, Proverbs says, and give attention to no understanding. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. If I'm going to love God with my mind, it's going to have involve me redirecting my attention. Renewing my mind is going to involve me redirecting my attention. The word attention has sort of with the idea of listen up. The scripture uses words like heed or hear. Listen and give heed. Do not be haughty, for the Lord has spoken. Attention has to do with what our focus is. What occupies my mind this morning? What am I looking for? What am I thinking about? Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And you see that sinful self, that part of me that is going to be in resistance to the truth of God, the part of me is going to be in resistance to the will of God and the word of God, is going to want to refuse to pay attention. The, the prophet writes, but they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. You see, loving God with my mind means that I'm, I'm not going to refuse paying attention. That I'm not going to turn a stubborn shoulder. Even if I don't like what God is telling me in the moment. Even if I find it hard and there's a natural resistance that comes up. The, the children of Israel, that was their problem. They were stubborn and they refused to listen. In fact, they got so aggravated with what the prophets were saying, they just stopped up there, stopped talking. I don't want to hear it anymore. But to pay attention means I open my ears. I listen. And I do not refuse to hear. So attention. I can refuse to hear. Or I can pay attention to the wrong things. Paul writes to Timothy, the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits. I wonder about Samson, I wonder about Aaron Rodgers, we heard about this morning in the breaking of bread, paying attention to deceitful spirits. In other words, voices in your head that tell you things that just aren't true, but they sound good. They make you feel better. They take away that disquiet. Oh, it's such a struggle to believe these truths. It's such a struggle to believe these things. It'd just be so much easier if I just stopped believing. And that's the way people get. Rather than wrestle, rather than recognize that the struggle is real, rather than admit that I have doubts and, and I don't know all the answers and I, I, I'm not sure about certain things, rather than just be honest with your own frailty and your own finiteness, rather than just admit that you're not God, it's just easier just to walk away. Paying attention to the wrong things. 
Not only does loving God with my mind mean paying attention, but it also means that I exercise reason. Most famous verse about reason in the Bible. Come now, what does it say? Let us reason together. Come now, God says, come now, let us reason together. What a, what a profound thing, right? God says, I gave you a mind, now let's use it. I gave you a mind, now let's use it. Come now, let us reason together. Why does the, the, why does the book of Proverbs talk so much about wisdom and understanding and discernment and knowledge if we're not supposed to use our reason? What does Proverbs say? Buy the truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. This is one of the first things that come to mind when we talk about loving God with our mind. We often default to this idea of reason. It's not the only one, but it is an important one. I mean, it involves the idea of study. It involves the idea of pursuing wisdom, pursuing instruction, pursuing understanding, wanting to know how things work, why they work the way they do. And that's true in all areas of life, but how much more so in the way we function as human beings? What we think matters. What we think matters. Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So this morning, you know, the Bible talks about our hearts and our minds. They can be deceived. They can be deluded. They can be darkened. They can be depraved. Your thinking matters. So, attention. What am I paying attention to? Am I paying attention to the Word? Am I paying attention to the Spirit? My reason. Am I exercising my reason? Am I seeking wisdom? Am I looking at instruction and getting understanding? And then the M, my memory. In fact, in some ways, memory is perhaps the most important aspect of our minds. Why? Because what are we if not the collection of our memories? I mean, I would ask you who you are today. If I would ask you, tell me about yourself, what would you begin to do? You might talk about your childhood. You might talk about your education. You might talk about your upbringing. What are all those things? Memories. And you see, memory is a vital function of our spiritual life. Listen to the words of God. Remember his wonderful deeds which he has done, his marvels and judgments from his mouth. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. Remember his covenant forever, the word which he's commanded to a thousand generations. But you shall remember the Lord your God. Do this in remembrance of me. This is just a sample of the commands over and over again in the scriptures to remember. We're to remember his deeds, his marvels, his judgments, his covenant. We're to remember him. Why? 
because we forget fast and often. Listen to the Lord's lament from Jeremiah. My people, my people have forgotten me days without number. You know what I don't have trouble forgetting? I mean, remembering? What I don't have trouble remembering? Past wrongs. I have no trouble remembering offenses. I have no trouble remembering sins, whether they're my sins or the sins of others against me. I have no trouble remembering failures. I remember those things all the time. I remember the, the hard word that that brother said to me 20 years ago. I remember that, that unkind deed. I remember that slap in the face, both literal and or figurative. I remember those things. They're embe embellished in my mind. They're just right there, embedded in my mind. I remember those things. I remember the things I'm not supposed to remember. But I forget the things I should remember. God says, your sins and your iniquities, I remember no more. But I keep a pretty big list of them. You see, memory is the way we love God with our mind. You know, it's not just what God did in the Bible, but every one of us here have marvels and wonders that God has worked in our lives. Every one of us here, if you know Jesus, he's done things in your life that you should never forget. And not just about the moment he saved you, which we should never forget, but just his care on a day-by-day -day basis. There are prayers that he's answered that you have to thank him for and never forget that he answered those prayers. There are deliverances he's brought into your life that you should never forget. There are paths he's taken you down that in the moment seemed dark and dismal, and then when you got through to the other side, you look back and you say, that was amazing. That journey was absolutely amazing. I thought I would never get out of it, and I'm on the other side. There are marvels and wonders that he has performed in your life, and you should not forget them. You should remember his wonders of old. You read the Psalms, that's what they did. They just loved to rehearse over and over again the things that God did for them as a people. And it caused them to praise him and worship him. And when they were in dark times, they said, this is what's going to get me through. I'm going to remember the works of old. Attention, reason, memory, I, imagination, imagination. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Visions, dreams, imaginations, holy imagination, allowing our minds to be a place, a fertile ground of imagining what God is like, imagining what God can do, imagining what his promises mean, imagining these things. What? Because imagination is a function of faith. And when I imagine something, I'm projecting something that is not necessarily so in the moment. 
but I can imagine something. It's like what Hudson Taylor said. He said, expect great things from God. Dare great things for him. You know what? There's no daring without imagination. There's no daring. There's no, there's no going out and trying something new. There's no risk-taking without imagination. There's no courage without imagination. I do a lot of imagining. I imagine the worst possible things happening to me all the time. That's what anxiety is. That's my mind in the employment of sin, imagining how God's going to fail me tomorrow, imagining how life is going to end up, imagining all the fears that I have coming true. That's what worry is. That's what anxiety is. It's just the imagination projecting into the future some calamity that has not yet realized. That's my imagination at, at work. But I can tell you I'm not loving God with my mind when my imagination is employed in that way. I mean, there are other kinds of dark imaginations. I mean, lust primarily functions as a, as a dark imagination. Pornography, a dark imagination. These are the, 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 the wrong uses of our mind. The uses of our mind that take us places we should not go. But why do we go there? Because remember, there's a part of my mind that's going to resist the word, that's going to resist the will of God. That's the old nature that's there. That's why my mind has to be renewed. And then there's that part of the culture that just keeps telling you that this is the way you need to do this and this is who you are to be and this is what it's all about and you just got to resist that. And finally, we have our attention, we have our reason, our memory, our imagination, and of course our mind should be in the pursuit of truth. The pursuit of truth. We arm it, our mind, the pursuit of truth. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, the Lord says, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offering. Then you shall understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. That you might walk worthy, Paul writes to the Colossians. What you might walk worthy of the Lord, at all pleasing, being fruitful in every good works, increasing in the knowledge of God. We are destroying speculations, Paul says, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought to the captive to the obedience of Christ. That's a challenge, isn't it? Taking every thought to the obedience of Christ. It's a frightening thing to think, and I don't know if this is how it's going to be, I really don't, but I imagine like standing before the judgment seat of Christ and God says, okay, now we're going we're gonna to evaluate your thought life. They're on the big screen, there it is, you know. My thought life. And there's like all these thoughts, and then bink, only took one captive. Bink, took another captive. You know, it just goes on and on. Bink, only like, you know, one every 10,000 thoughts gets taken captive. <laughs> Paul says we take captive every thought. You know, it's like Martin Luther said, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head. 
but you certainly can prevent them from making a nest in your hair. And so the reality is that as we think about truth and the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of knowing God, as Andrew Murray said, our one need is to know Jesus better. And so every thought that leads me toward Christ, as Paul says, is worthy to think about. Every thought that takes me away from Christ is one I need to dispense with. To love God with all our minds means that we know the truth, that we live the truth, and that we learn to speak the truth in love. Have you armed your mind this morning? Arm it with the same attitude that was in Christ Jesus. We have the mind of Christ. Let us renew our minds so that they're more like his. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity we've had to meditate on this command, to consider the renewing of our mind, to, to come before you and recognize that our way, your ways are not our ways, that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that as the heaven is higher than the earth, so are your thoughts higher than ours, and your ways higher than ours. That we just bow before you, O God, and recognize that you've given us this faculty, this mental ability, and we don't even begin to comprehend all of the mind-brain science and all that goes on there, Lord. That's just a, a wonder in itself, and we would say like the psalmist, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. But we do recognize, Lord, that there is this psychological self, this person that you are calling us to renew, to use our our faculty of the mind, to pay attention to your word, to reason and pursue knowledge, to have our memories flood with thoughts of you and what you've done for us, and to actually seek the truth, to buy it, to hold on to it, and to use our imaginations for your glory. We just pray, God, as we go forth in this week, that we might have our minds renewed a little bit today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.